Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Jeremiah chapter 8. If you have been with us following along so far in the book of Jeremiah, what you've seen so far is a whole lot of bad news for Judah. And there's more coming tonight. And there's a purpose for it. You see this same pattern all the way through the Bible. It is most obvious in the book of Romans. And when we've taught through Romans, I have emphasized that in order for Paul to get to the very, very good news, in order for him to get to, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Before he can get there, he has to begin by telling you how bad you really are. And so he starts the first three chapters of the book of Romans with Jews are guilty and Gentiles are guilty and everybody's guilty. And once he has leveled the field, then he can tell the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus. Well, same thing is happening here in Jeremiah. These first nine chapters are really just laying out God's case against Jerusalem. And if it feels a little bit redundant, it's meant to so that you can really feel how bad these people were, that there is just no way that they were going to be able to earn their own right standing before God, that if they were going to stand before God and not fry, it had to be because God did something. And that's why the arc of the book of Jeremiah is so astounding. We've been taking it verse by verse, week by week, so we're stretching it out over the course of months, and it's going to take us more than a year to get through the book. But if you were just sitting down and reading it, and you felt the arc of the story of Jeremiah, you would see God's declaration of Judah's absolute guilt, Jeremiah weeping over Jerusalem, And then you get to Jeremiah 31, and you get to the promise of the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and God saying that he's going to give them a new heart and put his law in their heart, and and God saying that he is going to accomplish in them and through them the things that they simply could not do by the law. And it's just astounding the amount of grace that comes pouring out of God by the time you get to the promise of the new covenant, but you wouldn't really feel the astounding grace and and magnificent goodness of God. You wouldn't feel that as much if you didn't have all these early chapters of how terrifically guilty these people are. Because by now, after eight weeks of this, I'm sure you're all saying, well, those are some bad people. They, They deserve some punishment from God. They deserve some judgment from God. They're they're just not good people. Neither are we. And so the same way that God ends up giving them promises and covenants and guarantees of an eternal future, it's the same thing he did for us. And so 
as we're looking at these early chapters and seeing God repeatedly saying that they deserve judgment and repeatedly calling them out for their sinfulness, remember that they are truly, genuinely no better than we are and that the same God who extends mercy to them is the same God who extends mercy to us. The story throughout the Bible is always the same. It's always people who don't deserve it end up getting grace from God. The end of the story is always grace, grace, grace. So starting at Jeremiah chapter 8, the first words of the chapter are, at that time, and you can't really start anything at, at that time. Let's back up just a couple of verses into Jeremiah 7, because really this is just a continuation of the exact same prophecy of judgment to come. Verse 32 of chapter 7, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but it will be called the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth, because there will be no other place, and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the land will become a ruin. And at that time. So this is all combined. This is all part of God's prophecy of judgment to come the onset of the Babylonian armies of Nebuchadnezzar coming down on Jerusalem at that time, declares the Lord. They will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah. Now, to really feel what God is saying here, you have to understand that part of the culture of Judah, and especially of those who were rich, those who were powerful, if they had had a good life, if they had had a wealthy life, an influential life, if they had a good name, then they would be buried, and they would have a good burial. Oftentimes, they would have some kind of memorial, some kind of tomb, something where you would know that they had been buried there. And God here is saying, I'm not going to let the bones, even of the wealthy, even of the kings, even of the leaders, I'm not going to let them lay at peace. In fact, I'm going to bring them out of their graves, probably as a result of the armies of Nebuchadnezzar that are going to trample through the ground and bring them out so that they lay before the sun and the moon. And in God's great irony, he's going to say those things that they worshiped are the very things that they're going to be exposed before. Here's the way he puts it. At that time, declares the Lord, they will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of its priests and the bones of its prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem from their graves and they will spread them out to the sun and to the moon and to all the hosts of heaven which they have loved and which they have served in which they have gone after, in which they have sought, in which they have worshipped. They will not be gathered or buried. They will be like dung on the face of the ground. 
And so God is saying that even for those who had died previously, there's not going to be any peace. There's going to be so much upheaval coming through Jerusalem that is going to affect those who are alive. And in fact, he says that those who are already alive would prefer death. That's verse 3. It's going to go so bad for Jerusalem that death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family, that remains in the places to which I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. So it's going to go bad for the living, but it's also going to go bad for the dead. He's going to upset their burial and bring out their bones and expose them to the things that they, this list is really interesting, to the things that they loved, the things they served, the things they chased after, the things that they sought, the things that they worshipped. Because all of those verbs should be applied to God. The people of Jerusalem should have loved God and served him. They should have gone after Yahweh. They should have sought him. They should have worshipped Yahweh. But instead, it was the sun and the moon and the hosts of heaven. And therefore, God is going to lay out their bones like dung on the ground before these things that they loved. It's like the ultimate mockery on God's part. And it's going to be so bad that even the living are going to prefer death. And death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family, that remains in all the places to which I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? In other words, he's saying basic logic would tell you, basic human behavior would tell you that when people stumble and fall down, they get back up again, unless they have life alert. (laughs) Fallen and I can't get up. When people fall down, they, they naturally pick themselves up again. Or if somebody turns away from their God or their loved ones or their, even their family, their habits, whatever, they go back, they repent, they say they're sorry, they make it okay again. And yet, despite the fact that God says that is just normal human behavior, why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? That's God's way of saying this makes no sense. You've heard me use the phrase so often, you would think that any rational thinking person would do thus and so. That's what God is saying here. You would think that anybody with a brain, having seen what I've already done to Israel, would think twice about their behavior, and yet they continue to go into this continual apostasy that doesn't even make sense anymore. It's not even humanly logical. They hold fast. They cling to their lies, to their deceit, and they refuse to return, to repent, to come back to me, to admit what they've done wrong. So verse 6, I have listened and I have heard, and they have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Instead, Everyone turned to his course like a horse charging into the battle. That picture of horses just charging into warfare. He says, that's the way human beings charge into their sinfulness. And that's the way that Jerusalem has just charged into their own ways, their own course, their own behavior. 
And that doesn't even make sense. After everything they've seen, after everything I've done, after all the ways that I've corrected them, they still continue to chase after their continual apostasy. That isn't even logical. You would think that men who know enough to get up again and men who know enough to go back and say, I'm sorry and repent, would realize that the biggest repentance that they need is to go back to their God and say, I'm sorry, what have I done? And yet he says, I listened, I heard, I looked, I watched. They say what is not right, and no one has repented of his wickedness. Nobody has come to me and said, what have I done? Instead, they just go charging forward like a horse, chasing after the things that they love. Then he's going to continue the argument of this just doesn't make sense. Because now he's going to go to nature and birds. Has anybody here ever owned a bird? I've had a couple of birds in my life. Pretty bright creatures, right, Jeff? Really smart. Good at long division. You can count on them to... Birds are not bright, which is why we use the phrase bird brain. And yet, despite the fact that they are not the brightest of animals, that they operate primarily on instinct, God is going to say, they're doing better than you people. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. Birds naturally migrate. They know when it's time. They know when the weather is changing. They know when it's time to go. They don't miss it. They get up and go because it's time. And he's saying, birds have figured out the rational thing to do. Birds understand their nature and what they're called to be and called to do. But my people do not know the ordinance of Yahweh. Birds know what to do. <laughs> Birds have the natural instinct to do the right thing. And yet my people don't even pay attention to my ordinances. Though I've exposed my ordinances to them, I have revealed my ordinances to them, I have commanded my ordinances to them, and they have not paid attention. They are dumber than bird brains. Verse 8. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? They thought the same way that we were talking last week about how they were turning the temple in Jerusalem into a sort of talisman. They thought that that was going to protect them simply because they lived within the region of the temple. Same thing here. They say, well, we are the people who have the law of God. And simply by virtue of the fact that we have the law, we have the temple, we have the Ark of the Covenant, we have the priesthood, we're the people who God has revealed himself to. Therefore, on that basis, we're the wise people. We're the ones who will compass land and sea to go make proselytes. We're the ones who know the God who created everything. And here is that very same God saying, how can you say we are wise and the law of Yahweh is with us? And yet, behold, the lying pen of the scribes. Do me a favor, Tom. Look up Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2 so that you can understand the real crime that God is describing here. The very fact that the scribes, the ones who would write down the law, the ones who would keep copies of the law, the fact that God would say, by their pen they are lying. 
But behold, the lying pen of the scribes, he made it, the law, into a lie. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, said, you teach as the commandments of God things that are really the traditions of men. And yet, way back in the law, back in Deuteronomy 4, as God was taking Israel into the promised land, he gave instruction concerning his word of law. Read it for us, Tom. Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And keep these commandments exactly like I said. So God is putting this emphasis on his word. Whatever my words are, don't change them. Don't contort them. Follow them exactly. And then I'll bless you and you'll live in this land. This is what God said to Israel as he was taking them into the promised land to begin with. If you want to continue in this land, if you want to stay in this land, just follow my rules, my ordinances, my law. And so that's why he is continually saying, my people do not know my ordinances. My people are not following me. And, and it's because the scribes, the very people who are supposed to be conveying my word to the people, those scribes are liars. And they're changing my word. And I started out by saying, don't add to it, don't take away from it. And then, of course, you get to the end of the book of Revelation, and it says the same thing. Don't add to it, don't take away from it. So I see from that, whether we're talking Old Testament or New, that God himself says, my words, my actual words, the words that I say, are really, really important. Pay attention to them, and don't add to them. Don't add your opinion to them. Don't take away from them those things that you might think are uncomfortable. Instead, pay attention to what I actually say. Hence, my rather literal reading of the Bible. Because God says, pay attention to everything I say. Which is why we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. So that we can't avoid anything. And we try very hard not to add anything. So how can you say we're the wise ones and the law of the Lord is with us and yet behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it, the law, into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They claim they're wise, but they're going to find out differently. They are dismayed and they are caught. And behold, They have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? So that's the answer to, how can you say you're wise? You're claiming you're wise because you say you've got the law of God, yet you're not paying attention to the law of God, and you're adding to it, and you're taking away from it, so you're turning my word into a lie. And as a consequence, I'm putting you to shame. As a consequence, you're caught. I have recognized what you are doing, and I am holding you responsible. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, look at the necessity, the importance, the primacy that God puts here on his own word. I know we talk about that a lot here, 
because it comes up so frequently in the Bible. But here is God himself once again saying, my word. Pay attention to my word, whatever my word says. Without addition, without subtraction, pay attention to my word. But you have rejected the word of the Lord, so you're not wise. Even though you claim to be wise, what kind of wisdom do they have if they reject me and I am the source of all wisdom? So what did Solomon say? The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. So here's God saying, you don't fear me enough to pay attention to my word. Well, then you're not wise. And I sort of like God's little sarcastic use of language here. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do you have? Really? We could ask that of a whole lot of people in the world today. (laughs) People who have just rejected the word of God and yet think they're really clever. Really smart. I won't go into examples at this moment, but boy, I saw one today by a guy who just claims to be the scientist of scientists who has embraced the whole many gender thing. And my first thought was, you're not wise. How foolish are you? What kind of wisdom could you possibly have? Verse 10, therefore, As a punishment, therefore, I will give their wives to others, and their fields I will give to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet, even to the priest, everyone practices lying and deceit. And they heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially. And here's how they do it. They say, peace, peace. But there is no peace. So very, very interesting language. Pay attention again to the language here. God says that the failure of Jerusalem to follow after his word, to pay attention to his ordinances, and as a consequence, the way that he is punishing them and correcting them, he likens it to a sickness, that he is breaking them, and he likens it to disease that he has put through them. And yet, he says the, the priests, the leaders, try to heal this disease, try to heal the brokenness of his people, but they try to do it in a superficial way. They put a Band-Aid on it, but they don't cure anything. And that Band-Aid takes the shape of telling people, it's all good, it's all peace. Don't worry, it's all good. God is for you. God's not against you. No, it's good. You've got his law, you're fine. You've got his temple. Go kill a couple animals, and he doesn't care what you do the rest of the week. Peace, it's all good. And yet God is saying at the same time that they're out there telling people, no, it's all good, no, it's all peace. At that same time, I'm angry at you, and I'm bringing Babylon down on you. And I'm going to take you out of your land. And I'm going to put you in slavery for the next 70 years. And the walls are coming down. And the temple's going to be destroyed, that temple that you trust so much in. So it's not peace. And yet, rather than tell you the truth, your leaders who claim to be so wise, these wise men, are telling you, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Verse 12 
Were they ashamed because of the abominations that they have done? They certainly were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, declares the Lord. We live in a society right now, it seems to me, that has forgotten how to blush. They're not ashamed of anything. It doesn't matter how bold, how sinful, how depraved. They just say, pride. We just have pride in our depravity. We have parades about it. We have a whole month dedicated to it. You don't see repentance anywhere. You don't see shamefacedness anywhere. They have forgotten how to blush. And so God, looking at Jerusalem, accuses them of that very thing that is running rampant in our world right now. Do you think God's going to let that go on forever? Because God does not change. Verse 13, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on their vines, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall wither, and what I have given them shall pass away. Why are we sitting still? What a great question. And I'm not sure if it is God asking that question or if at that moment it's Jeremiah asking that question. It's like, why are we resting on our laurels? Why are we looking at our history and then just resting like everything is okay? We've been lied to that it's all peace. We are trusting that we're wise and know the law of God, though we don't do it. We are trusting in the temple of God because it's in our midst, and yet we don't really worship God. And in fact, God said, you go and you worship your idols and all the heaven and the moon and the stars and everything else. And then you come into the temple and also try to worship me, and I reject you for that, and I reject your offerings. And and so the question is, what are you doing? Why are you sitting still? Assemble yourselves. Let us go to the fortified cities and let us perish there because the Lord our God has doomed us and he has given us poison water to drink for we have sinned against the Lord. I think this is Solomon speaking on behalf of Jerusalem and calling them, assemble yourselves. Come on, we need to get into the fortified cities. Babylon is coming. War is coming. Trouble and destruction is coming because the Lord our God, far from bringing peace on us, the Lord our God has actually doomed us. He's poisoned our water that we get to drink. And it's our fault because we have sinned against Yahweh and we waited for peace, but no good is coming. We waited for a time of healing, but behold, it is terror from Dan is heard the snorting of his horses. At the sound of the neighing of his stallions, the whole land quakes, for they come and they devour the land and its fullness, 
the city and its inhabitants. That's his description of Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of the Chaldeans. They are coming on horseback. They are coming fast. They are coming on stallions. And the way that the horses pound on the ground, it feels and sounds like earthquakes. They're coming to devour the land and its fullness, the cities and its inhabitants. They mow down everything in front of them, and they leave destruction in their wake. And what are you doing just sitting here? What are you doing thinking everything's fine? Assemble yourself. React to the fact that God has already told you that they're coming and that it's going to be bad, and you're just sitting here. And yet the Lord our God has doomed us. Coming down from Dan, coming down from the north, very consistent geography there, are the snorting of his horses and the sound of his stallions. And the whole land is quaking, for they come and they devour the land and its fullness. They devour the city and its inhabitants. Verse 17, for behold, I am sending serpents against you, adders for which there is no charm, and they will bite you, declares the Lord. Okay, we know that's God saying it, whether it is Jeremiah repeating it for God. It is God who said and likened the Babylonians to poisonous snakes. I'm sending adders among you, and you're not going to be able to charm them. They're going to attack you. They're going to bite you. They're going to kill you. And then verse 18 appears to be Jeremiah speaking. Uh, we're going to see a whole lot more of this next week. But one of the nicknames that Jeremiah carries is the weeping prophet because he's hearing all of this bad news from God. And he's telling the people, come on, what are you doing? What are you sitting there? Pay attention to God. Pay attention to us. Hurry. You don't have time. Repent now. And yet, as I told you in the introduction to Jeremiah, nobody listens to him. Exactly like God said, they're not going to listen to you, but you're going to go and tell them. And so he has this heaviness, and he has this weeping, and he has this sorrow that exudes from him over Jerusalem and over the people of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 18 says, My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. In other words, they're not going to be in Jerusalem anymore. They're not going to be in the promised land anymore. They're going to be hauled off into Babylon to serve out their 70 years. Is the Lord, is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not in her midst? In other words, sensible people would think, well, these are the people of God, the people of Yahweh specifically. He has said that Zion is the place where he's going to put his name. That's where his temple is. Well, then doesn't it make sense that that's where his people would be? And yet God is going to drive them out of there and drive them into Babylon. And again, God is saying, this makes no sense. And yet you've brought this on yourselves by your sin, by your rebellion, by chasing your other gods. Behold, pay attention, listen. The cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her, in her midst? 
Why have they provoked me with their graven images and with foreign idols? Well, harvest is past. Summer is ended. And we are not saved. In other words, God's going to do what God's going to do. And he has already said, I'm going to punish you and I'm not going to turn back from it. And as the seasons go by, as they're waiting for the redemption, that God is going to come and save them from these armies of Nebuchadnezzar, from the onslaught of the Chaldeans, from the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They're waiting for God to come do something about it. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't come and save them. Harvest is past. Summer is ended. And we're still not saved. Verse 21. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I think that's Jeremiah saying, because God has brought this punishment on these people, Jeremiah, seeing the brokenness of Jerusalem, is broken within himself. I mourn, and dismay has taken a hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? And Jeremiah, seeing the nonstop heartache, the continual destruction of Jerusalem and its people, seeing that, he says, is there no way to cure this? Is there no medicine, no ointment I can put on the sore? Is there no way to help these people because they're in pain? And there's no balm anywhere in this land. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there, nobody who can help or heal them? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? The answer, of course, is because they've brought this on themselves. And then chapter 9, which we're going to look at next week, continues along this exact same thinking. It's a very strange place to put a new chapter break because after he asks the question, why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? He says, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears that I may weep day and night. There's the weeping prophet and that I may weep for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, so that I might leave my people and go from them, for all of them are adulterers. They are an assembly of treacherous men, and they bend their tongue like they bend their bow. And lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. And Jeremiah, having heard from God, having understood the vision that God has shown him, 
is weeping over the fact that there is no cure, that there is nothing that can be done for these people, that they brought it on themselves, they're very guilty, they deserve the punishment of God, and Jeremiah is witnessing the destruction of these people he loves and this city he loves, and there is no balm in Gilead, there is no physician that can help them, there is nothing anybody can do about their state. Turn to Isaiah 53. You know Isaiah 53, which begins, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of Christ, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. And he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our grief he himself bore. When Isaiah said that, who was he talking about? He was a representative of Israel. He was speaking this on behalf of Israel. He is a prophet to Israel. He wasn't talking about the church. Sure, we can extend these concepts out into the church, but originally these are Israel's promises because Israel is in grief and Christ came, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel came and bore the griefs and our sorrows he carried and yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Yes, they were the very people who were responsible for the striking and the smiting and the affliction that they put on him. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Why is God bringing all this misery on Judah that he has already brought on Israel? Because of their transgressions. So what is the cure for their transgressions? Christ is. He is the one who carried through the smiting of God. He is the one who was pierced through because of their transgressions. And he was crushed for their iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And then look at this verse. And by his stripes, by his scourging, we are healed. Okay, so in Jeremiah we read... Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? The health of the daughter of my people needs to be restored. How am I going to restore them? The answer is in Isaiah. It has already been predicted that the only way these people are going to be helped, the only way they're going to be ultimately saved and redeemed, the only way they're going to be restored to their land, the only way they're going to be restored to right standing before God is for somebody to stand in the gap between them and God and his wrath. And Isaiah has already told us that the one, the Messiah, is going to come and is going to die for their transgressions and by his stripes, he's going to heal them because of how sick they are. Now, why am I stressing that? Because that verse, that idea out of Isaiah, for by his stripes we are healed, has been so abused and misused in the history of the church to develop all this thinking of spiritual healing and you should have perfect health your whole life if you just had enough faith in Christ because he died and by his stripes you are healed. That's not the context at all. The context is Israel is sick. Israel is wounded. 
and there is no cure, and there is no balm, and there is no physician, and that's why Christ is going to come and not only get his church, not only did he die to pay for his church, but he is, and never neglect this, he is the Savior of Israel. He is the Messiah of Israel, and by his stripes, Israel is healed. So he is a very, very complete Savior, and part of, as I stated at the beginning of my message, part of the arc of the book of Jeremiah is that Israel is really, really guilty, and Judah is really, really guilty, and they deserve what they've got coming to them, and it's bad. And by the time we get to chapter 31, God's saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I drew you to myself. That's Jeremiah 31.3. How did we get from, you evildoers who are stupider than birds, you deserve for me to completely slaughter you, all the way to, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Grace. Grace, and in between, there's a Savior. In between, Christ comes and makes it okay between God and Israel again. And that's the same arc that's happening in your life. That you went from enemy of God, that's the exact language Paul uses, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And then you end up being told that you could run to the throne of grace crying, Abba, Father. Somehow you went from enemy of God to child of God. And what made that happen? Christ, the one in the center. Christ, who changed everything right in the middle. You didn't do it the same way Israel's not going to do it. There was no cure for you the same way there was no cure for Israel. You are saved by one way and one way only, and it's the same way that Israel's going to be saved. And just because you're being saved, don't neglect the fact that Israel's being saved through the same method, through the same Savior, by the same grace of the same God. It's all grace, 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 grace. It's the same story over and over again. So Jeremiah is going to weep. Jeremiah is going to lament. Later in the book, Jeremiah is going to plant and build. And he's going to announce the new covenant. So there's a bunch of good stuff coming. But first, we have to wade through all the bad stuff. And it's good to know the character, the nature of the God that we serve. And I, I hope that in these initial chapters here, you're getting some sense of the severity of the God that we serve, who is so willing to punish his own people who just don't pay attention to his word. That's how important his word is to him. And it seems to me if it's that important to him, it ought to be that important to us. Yes. Well, then, Jeff, what do I say next? I'm done. That's it. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.